The eight-year-old girl couldn't sleep and her aunt and uncle were worried. Six months previous, the child had been caught in a violent thunderstorm in which a tornado had destroyed the small wooden home they lived in. She had been knocked unconscious and now was having delusions that she had spent some time in a magical place. She thought she had experienced some amazing and frightening things. She had made new friends and was responsible for the death of two old women who were called witches. Aunt Em and Uncle Henry want to cure her brain, but she wants nothing more than to return to Oz. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. In a review of Return to Oz by Louisa Melnor from June 21st, 2019, Louisa wrote... Return to Oz's opening sequence situates the fantasy story in a world of madness, medical experiments, and psychotic hallucinations. Dorothy divides herself into two personalities, one blonde, one brunette. She's plagued by electricity, which symbolizes a kind of modern evil, and dreams a series of fantastic events, all of which have a counterpart in her non-dream world. As I said, it's basically Mulholland Drive, but with a talking chicken. Another review by Bella Flowers on a site called Mamma Mia has the headline, Return to Oz is the most disturbing children's film, quote unquote, to ever exist. And on The Guardian, Rich Berman writes, Hear me out, why Return to Oz isn't a bad movie. When this film was released, it got horrible reviews. But now, more than 30 years later, people are starting to rediscover this film and are beginning to understand that it's actually a pretty good flick. Hello, my name is Jeff Kelly and welcome to the 24th episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today is the third Monday of the month and that means I'm going to talk about a film recommended by a listener. Today we're looking at the 1985 Disney film Return to Oz. The film was recommended by my friend from Australia, Russell. And as an added bonus, Russell sent me some audio of his thoughts on the film, and we'll hear that in a bit. Now, when Walter Murch was a child of around five, his mother used to read him the Oz books, the books written by L. Frank Baum. Later, as an adult, after working with people like Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas, editing and mixing sound for films like The Rain People, THX 1138, American Graffiti, The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, and Apocalypse Now, which he won his first Academy Award for, he was ready to make his own feature. Having a love of the Oz books, he talked to Disney about making an Oz film, not even knowing that at the time, Disney owned the rights to the Oz series, and they wanted to make a film as quickly as possible before the copyrights expired. Walter wanted to make a film that had the elements he remembered as a child, so the decision was made to attempt to be more faithful to the books, and the resulting film was Return to Oz. While watching this film, one will notice that this film is dark, very dark. I mean, we open with Dorothy going for electroshock therapy because she's so troubled by the events of the first story. (laughs) 
When she gets to Oz, it has the look of a city that's been bombed out during World War II. This got me thinking to the original book and the 1939 film version of it. How dark was the original book, I thought, so I went back and read it. And yes, it was a lot darker than the MGM film. There were things cut from the book, like the Kaladas, beasts with bodies like bears and heads like tigers, who get dashed to pieces on sharp rocks at the bottom of a large ditch. At one point, the Wicked Witch sends a pack of great wolves to tear Dorothy and her friends into small pieces. Oh, these are talking wolves, by the way. But that doesn't stop the Tin Woodsmen from chopping all 40 wolves' heads off, one by one, until they're all laying dead in a heap before his feet. Dorothy was sleeping at the time, but could you imagine how a nine-year-old girl would react to seeing a pile of bloody dead wolves when she woke up? Hmm. The witch then sends a flock of large crows to get them. She tells them to peck out their eyes and rip them to pieces. The scarecrow handles the crows by twisting each one's neck until dead. And the third time, the witch sends a swarm of angry bees to sting them to death. Yeah, you can see why that was cut out of the light-hearted MGM film. Oh, and one last thing. Did I mention that the Wicked Witch is barely in the book? She's only in a small section in the middle. Anyway. So, while Return is more faithful to the books, at least in tone, it does take some elements from the MGM movie. The whole beginning to the 1939 film was all an invention of the film. There were no farmhands... Hunk, Zeke, and Hickory, nor was there a Miss Gulch. We get Dorothy and the Twister almost in the first two pages. Return to Oz copies that same format by inventing characters that weren't in the book, like Dr. L.B. Worley and Nurse Wilson. And of course, they'll turn up in Oz as characters. They also use the ruby slippers, being that in the book they are silver shoes. And I read that Disney had to pay MGM quite a lot of money to use ruby slippers. Oh, another side note here. There is a scene in the book where the Wicked Witch wants the silver shoes, and Dorothy says, no, they are mine. But I think, and and I'm not a lawyer, but I think that in a court of law, since they came off the feet of the Wicked Witch's dead sister, whom Dorothy accidentally killed, I think the shoes should be property of the Wicked Witch. I'm just saying. (laughs) The book, Asma of Oz, is the third in the series, but the second with Dorothy. And while most of the film is based on Ozma of Oz, some elements are taken from the second book, The Marvelous Land of Oz. And I think I understand why. I mean, they wanted a film that featured Dorothy as the central character, and that's the third book, but there are some elements in the second book that are needed to tell the story. The story begins about six months after the 1939 film. 
Dorothy seems to be suffering from some sort of PTSD. She can't sleep, she can't eat, and NEM is worried. Uncle Henry is also having a tough time. He had broken his leg during the twister, but now, even though he's healed, he just sits around, not wanting to work on rebuilding the house. A solution to Dorothy's problem seems to be found in the newspaper. A Dr. J.B. Worley uses electrotherapy as a cure to get rid of all those bad dreams. In a sanitarium, she meets Nurse Wilson and a mysterious girl, whom I assume is another patient. During a thunderstorm at night, they strap down Dorothy and get ready to zap her with electricity. But just before they flip the switch, a power failure turns everything dark. And the mysterious girl frees Dorothy and the two run away, being chased by the evil nurse. They both wind up in a river during a storm. Dorothy manages to grab a hold of a floating chicken coop. She awakes the next morning, floating, with a talking chicken named Belina. Another side note, in the book, the chicken is named Bill because when she was young, a boy gave her a boy's name. So Dorothy corrects her name by calling her Belina. Dorothy and the chicken soon come across the old farmhouse that took her to Oz the first time. And then they see the yellow brick road or what's left of it. Yellow bricks are everywhere and that's because Oz is in shambles. She's soon warned of the wheelers terrifying, bizarre creatures with wheels for feet and hands. And most of her friends from the first adventure now have been turned to stone or into ornaments. So Dorothy's new adventure begins. Along the way, she'll meet Tick-Tock, a mechanical man that needs to be wound, Princess Mombi, who collects heads and changes the heads like one would change hats, and Jack Pumpkinhead, who actually has a pumpkin for a head and is worried about it rotting. But now it's time for me to take a break and and let Nancy take over for a while. Take it away, Nancy. Hello, folks. First, I want to apologize for how long my segment with Gordon went last episode and for how hard we were on Aguirre, the Wrath of God. In future, I'm going to try to keep my segments with Gordon more structured and positive. For this episode, well... What can I say? I hadn't seen Return to Oz since it was first released in theaters, and I wondered if it would hold up. I liked it in 1985, but I was a college kid then. I'm old and gray and jaded now. Would the effects hold up? The story? The acting? Short answer, yes to everything. I'm sure Jeff is covering this aspect, but I think people back in 85 were expecting Wizard of Oz, the MGM Mega Musical Part 2. And that's part of why it didn't become the big hit it should have been. What they got was a much straighter interpretation of the original children's books, which is darker and more nuanced, and I think it's great. My first thought was awe at the costume design. 
why do some fantasy movies have better period clothing, etc., than a serious, quote-unquote, historical films? Second thought, and not really apropos of anything, but I love buff Orpington chickens. It's no surprise that they chose them for Bolina. They're round and fluffy and good-natured. It's good casting. Also, the chicken puppet, puppeteering, and voice work for Bolina are brilliant. Today, she'd be a CG creation and maybe the poorer for it. I think the puppet work in this film has a lot of heart and it's artistically done. Speaking of pre-CGI animation, how about that gnome king and his minion gnomes? Insanely good stop-motion work. I can't begin to reverse engineer some of it. I think the animators knocked it out of the park with the different styles of stop-motion. It doesn't hurt that the Gnome King is voiced and acted by Nickel Williamson, whom I've loved since his turn as Merlin in John Borman's weird version of the King Arthur story, Excalibur. He was a truly great actor with a mesmerizing voice. I could listen to him read anything all day long, but I digress. I'll leave all other film commentary to Jeff, but we'll now go down a rabbit trail, as I am wont to do, of other films adapted from children's books with varying levels of success. That is ancient sorcery. Quite powerful, too. First up, Howl's Moving Castle. It's pretty much two different stories with shared characters. The film greatly simplifies things, but it would have been a complicated mess otherwise and better suited to a live-action miniseries. The book develops Sophie's latent magical powers in more detail, has a much larger cast of characters, a more complicated family for Sophie, and the black setting on the castle's door dial takes a person to Wales, in our version of the UK. Yes, it's a multiverse kind of story, in the book anyway. The film isn't better or worse than the books, it's just different in a way that plays wonderfully. Now die-hard fans of Diane Wynne Jones' novel are probably annoyed by it, but I like both versions just fine. The Harry Potter series. I read most of the books before the first film was released, and I think the filmmakers did a fine job of capturing the essence of the novels. Of course, simplifications and omissions happened, otherwise the films, especially the later ones, would have all been three-parters. As it is, the last novel was, wisely I think, split into two parts. The films simplify things, naturally. Some of those books are doorstops. Despite this, they hold pretty true to the source material. Like Howl, I appreciate the novels and the films separately for what they are, and I don't think one is better than the other. The Chronicles of Narnia is one of the most beloved collections of children's books of all time. The BBC really tried hard to do these books justice back in 1988, starting with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course. Now, these versions were very good, 
but they were also shot on video and suffered from limited technological advances. It wasn't until the 21st century that we got a version that does the source material proud. I've only seen the beginning of the 2005 Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, and it looks amazing. I got a copy from my local library, watched the first few minutes, and quit. I knew I was just going to buy it anyway. For some reason, I never did. I must remedy that. What if the internet implodes and I can't stream anymore? I like visitors as much as the next hobbit. But I do like to know them before they come. Visiting. Mr. Baggins? At your service. Like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit is a book that was just waiting for film technology to mature to a point where it could be done right. The animated version, made for TV back in 1977, was what you'd expect from an industry that routinely fails to understand what makes a beloved classic a beloved classic. Hey, it got me to read The Hobbit, so, you know, it, there's that. But, uh... That Rankin-Bass pitch meeting probably went something like, Hey, it's for kitties. Make it cutesy and add musical numbers. <sighs> yeah. The Peter Jackson trilogy fell victim to the success of his Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I feel like he was probably under studio pressure to capture lightning in a bottle twice. The problem is, while Lord of the Rings is an epic tale for mature readers, The Hobbit is a children's story. It always was. He wrote it for his kids. It could certainly have been told in two parts, but the trilogy pads it out and adds piles of story elements that are not in the original, while cutting things that were important for some reason. Poor Bjorn, he got short shrift. Poor Radagast, he's an idiot. I do appreciate showing Gandalf's adventures at Dol Guldur in his search for the status of Sauron. That wasn't in The Hobbit per se, but it is canonical, so I'm fine with it. My beef is with the weird stuff that needlessly muddies up a basic hero tale. Did I enjoy the films? Yes. I laughed and cried. But did I roll my eyes in some places? Also yes. Well, that could have been worse. Fairy Tale Theater was Shelley Duvall's passion project in the early 80s. She covers many fairy tales, not all of them from the Grimm brothers, told beautifully and comfortably within the technological limitations of when they were shot. This beloved series features outstanding performances from many A-list actors and many up-and-comers. On the downside, like the 80s Chronicles of Narnia, all but one of this show's many episodes were shot on video. On the upside, who cares? Kids certainly won't. Oh, I do like a party. Come on, Pig. What should happen if you forget about me? Silly old bear. I won't ever forget about you, Pig. I promise. Not even when I'm 100. The final bullet point on my list is... While not an adaptation of an extant A.A. Milne novel, Christopher Robin is a charming what-if-Christopher-Robin-grew-up-and-forgot-his-childhood story, presuming the Hundred Acre Wood had really been populated with talking animals, like Winnie the Pooh. I really liked it. The entire cast is outstanding, and the story was more polished than I was expecting. There's a lot of, 
You're a sad, lost grown-up because you've forgotten your dreams stuff. But many other tropes are pleasantly subverted. I never felt betrayed, disappointed, or that the creators felt it necessary to bring the story back to harsh gray reality. All in all, I think it's a solid family film. Of course, the casting helps, and Ewan McGregor and Haley Atwell are great leads. People say nothing is impossible, but I do nothing every day. No, poo-poo, that's not the... Oh, never mind. <laughs> Back to this episode's film, Return to Oz. I think my favorite line is from the scene where Dorothy re-enters Mombi's tower to find Pumpkinhead Jack dealing with a nutty TikTok whose brain works have run down. Jack says, if his brain's run down, how can he talk? And Dorothy replies, it happens to people all the time, Jack. Speaking from personal experience, I agree with Dorothy. Thanks, Nancy. And um, I will say, you know, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films or read the books. I've read all of the Lord of the Rings books and The Hobbit, and I've seen all the Lord of the Rings films, but I never watched The Hobbit films. But, you know, you did mention one of my favorite actors, Nicol Williamson, and I love the film Excalibur. It's one of my favorite films. We, we should do that on the show one day. And also, he was in another great film, The 7% Solution, where he plays Sherlock Holmes, and I really enjoyed that film as well. Anyway, thanks a lot. Now, before we get back to my ramblings, why don't we hear what Russell has to say about Return to Oz? Uh, hello, folks. My name's Russell. I've been um, a listener and uh, contributor to Jeff's uh, podcasts, um, Celluloid Days and the earlier Coffee with Jeff, for some years now. And uh, Jeff quite kindly asked me if I wanted to make some contributions orally. And so here it is. The 1985 Disney movie Return to Oz is a great fantasy film. Fantasy author Neil Gaiman said, Terrifying and visionary, funny and exciting, it's one of the best fantasy films I've ever seen. It had a very respectable $28 million budget, impeccable special effects, incredible costumes and makeup, and had a top-line cast and crew. So why, oh why, did it only take $11 million in its initial box office release? It's a movie I had long intended to see, but never quite got around to it. A sequel to the 1939 NGM classic Wizard of Oz, I first heard of its promotional articles in the SF Media magazine Starlog and Fantastic Films in the mid-80s, and had planned on seeing it when it first came out. But I don't think it actually got a cinema release in Australia after it flopped in America. In those days, there was often a long gap between the US and the rest of the world releases, so if a film did badly, distributors would pull it from their release schedules, and by the mid-80s it would wind up as a straight-to-video release. It did come out on video a few years later, but I didn't bother, assuming it was a no-good flop. But about a month ago, I sat down and said, I will watch this film. Now, before you say, well, it served Disney right to rip off a classic movie and then have their crummy sequel fail, the MGM feature was only one of a long string of adaptions of the L. Frank Baum book series. That's right, Oz was a series. The original 1900 Wizard of Oz was followed in 1904 by The Marvelous Land of Oz, and then a dozen other sequels up to 1920, along with several other books set in the Oz arena, featuring new and old Oz characters, much as are done today with media franchises like Star Wars and Harry Potter. 
Osborne also created a hit stage musical with a shorter Wizard of Oz title, and then from 1910, several silent Oz movies appeared. At first from the early movie company Selig, and then Baum's own Oz films. These were loosely based on the book series, and surviving ones are easily obtainable on YouTube if you want more Oz in your life. Return to Oz is essentially a mix and match of the first two sequel books, The Marvelous Land of Oz and Ozmar of Oz. The Ozmar book provides most of the plot, which takes place in Ev, not Oz, while Marvelous did not feature Dorothy at all, but introduced Jack Pumpkinhead, Mombi the Witch and the Powder of Life. While not a direct sequel, Return also draws from the MGM film, as it's supposed to take place several months afterwards, and uses the ruby slippers, which were created for the 39 movie as are much better in Technicolor than the original silver shoes. Disney had to pay a hefty price for permission to use them, but hey, they can afford it. Dorothy is played by a then nine-year-old Fariza Bork, who is chosen from a thousand auditioning youngsters. She is closer to the book Dorothy than Judy Garland, who was 17 in 1939 and played Dorothy as a young teen. Fariza continued acting and became something of a goth icon for a 1996 movie, The Craft. The frightening nurse Wilson stroke Momby was played by Jean Marsh in a clear parallel to Margaret Hamilton's dual role in the NGM film. Jean Marsh is well known for her role of Rose in 70s TV series Upstairs Downstairs, which she co-created and also made notable appearances on Doctor Who and many other TV series. Distinguished British actor Nicole Williamson played Dr. Wally Stroke Gnome King, Emma Ridley played Princess Ozma, the sanitarium girl, and Piper Laurie played Auntie M. The movie was directed by Walter Murch, a respected Oscar winner, though mainly for film editing and sound design on several Hollywood classics. Now you may ask, as I'm sure the executives did at Disney, why did the movie fail at the box office? I liked it, Neil Gaiman liked it, Harlan Ellison liked it, even my wife Janet liked it, and she doesn't even like the 39 Wizard of Oz. I think the answer lies in Merch deliberately taking a darker fantasy tone for Return to Oz than did the other versions. Now, you may say, many classic fantasy and fairy tales have frightening elements, like the Wicked Queen in Snow White, or Oz's own Wicked Witch of the West, but Return to Oz has them in bucketfuls. The scene set in the sanitarium would not be out of place in a Hammer horror movie. The claymation effects for the Gnome King and his minions is outstanding, but damn scary. And there's scenes of a headless Mombi changing her head around as she discusses removing Dorothy's. The punk-like wheelers are also unsettling, then there are the petrified people of Oz, and even sympathetic characters like Pumpkinhead and the Tin Man look creepy. Return to Oz used state-of-the-art animatronic puppets instead of the pantomime costumes of the earlier versions, but this gives them the not-quite-right Uncanny Valley feel. This is all the more unsettling when mixed in with more familiar Disney motifs like feisty children, talking chickens, and humorous fantasy characters like the Gump and Mechanical Man TikTok. Apparently, the crew said that after some scenes, uh, wow, that looks great, but it's really disturbing. Now, you may further say, directors like Tim Burton have made a highly successful career of very similar material, but in the mid-80s, that sort of dark fantasy genre had yet to emerge in movies, and the audience for it had not developed. Also, Disney was still seen as the purveyor of children, family-friendly entertainment, and so Return to Oz was thus seen as a movie too scary to take young kids to, but too kiddie-winky for the teen and adult crowd. This view was reinforced by most contemporary critics. Children are sure to be startled by its bleakness, said the New York Times. 
Ian Nathan of Empire Magazine gave the film 3 out of 5 stars, saying, This is not so much a sequel, but a homage, and not a good one. Canadian film critic Jay Scott felt the protagonists were too creepy and weird for viewers to relate to or sympathise with. Dorothy's friends are as weird as her enemies, which is faithful to the original Oz books, but turns out not to be a virtue on film, where the eerie has a tendency to remain eerie, no matter how, told, no matter how often we're told that it's not. It's bleak, creepy, and occasionally terrifying, added Dave Kerr of the Chicago Reader, while Amelie Gillette of the AV Club frequently refers to its dark nature as unsuitable for its intended audience of young children, although it had been one of her favourite movies growing up. Other reviews described the movie as a horror show flying under the banner of family entertainment. The commercial failure of Return to Oz and several other big-budget Disney projects like The Black Hole, Tron, Dragon Slayer, and The Watcher in the Woods led them to start releasing their non-G-rated material under the banner of Touchstone Pictures. This has led to a big commercial turnaround which has made them the entertainment colossus that they are today. The modern audience, raised on the likes of Beetlejuice, Nightmare Before Christmas, Edward Scissorhands and Neil Gaiman's myriad of multimedia works, are far more in tune with what Return to Oz was trying to do, so I can recommend the film to any devotee of the aforementioned, but just don't expect any songs from the Lollipop Guild. Thanks, Russell. It was great to hear your voice finally. And you're right. This movie did really bad. It lost like $11 million at the box office. And sadly, Walter Murch was put into the so-called box office poison category and was never able to get another directing job in Hollywood again, which is so sad. I mean, right now I'm going to play you what Siskel and Ebert said about the film when it was released. And it's very harsh. You know, a bad adult film is one thing. But somehow, a bad children's film is even worse. Admit it. Because you sit there, even if you're a critic paid to sit there, you sit there thinking, what am I doing with my life watching this picture? And Return to Oz was such a lousy film that I'll always resent that it stole two hours of my life. <laughs> when I'm dying, I want you to know if you're at my funeral. I want you to know I'll be there thinking, I could have lived two years, two I'm hours gonna, longer, I'll say a few, happier. I'll say a few words over your grave. He would have had two hours more happiness if it hadn't been for Return to Oz. Thank you very much. This was supposed to be the film that was more true to the Oz books, but they made changes from the book it was based on, and they still made a trashy picture, a trashy-looking film with none of the joys of the classic Judy Garland Oz film. Well, you know what I like most about the picture? The hen. <laughs> I've said this before, I'll say it again. You know you're in trouble when your favorite character in a movie is a hen that only has a bit part. This movie was amazing. It starts out with Dorothy having is being left overnight oh. at the house of a strange unbelievable surgeon. then she's given shock treatment then she's swept away in a flood uh by the time the movie is is half an hour old the kids in the audience are probably terrified yeah. it was not an upbeat children's film absolutely wrong and i was so glad that the audience rejected it unfortunately i had to see it first one of the first decisions i ever made when i decided to do a podcast on film was to always try to be positive about any film I watched. Even if it's a film that I disagree with, that I didn't enjoy watching, that I thought was flat out a bad film. I still try to be positive about the film because I know that just because I didn't appreciate it doesn't mean I'm right. And there are people out there who probably do appreciate the film and they have reasons for appreciating it. And they see things in the film that I didn't see. Anyway, reviews like that are why the film did poorly, lost money, and Walter Murch was never able to direct again. Now, while I enjoyed watching this film, I'll say that I think the film suffers from not having enough lighthearted moments. You know, the MGM movie, it gets a little dark here and there, but then there's a happy song that 
it sort of balances out. This doesn't really have that. There's a few moments of trying to be almost comical and they play whimsical music, but I just don't think it works. And I'm not saying personally that bothered me, but I think if you're trying to make a family film, you need that release once in a while. And like it or not, people are going to compare it to the original. They're going to say, this is a sequel to a movie that I love. And that comparison, unfortunately, hurt the movie big time. You can even hear it in Siskel and Ebert's review. They begin by talking about the 1939 movie. So it had a lot going against it when it was released. But now these days, apparently, it's becoming a cult classic. And people are starting to realize that, hey, this movie wasn't as bad as everybody thought it was back in the day. But now it's time to find out what some other people think about the films. And of course, for that, I always turn to Rotten Tomatoes. It gets a 71% audience score, which is actually pretty good. It was better than I thought it was going to get. Peter B. gave it 5 out of 5 stars, and he wrote, I love this film, and I can't believe it's taken me this long to watch it. More faithful to the source material than The Wizard of Oz, this follow-up film is just a joy to watch. The Oz book series always had a sinister undertone, and Return to Oz captures that essence. Highly recommended for adults and kids, over 12-ish. Yep, it's a little scary. Somebody named J.K. also gave it 5 out of 5 stars, and he wrote, Spectacular visuals. I didn't grow up with the original Oz, so this was my first exposure. Found it terrifying, thrilling, dark, and beautiful as a child, and it holds up well to a revisiting as an adult. It's too bad it was not judged on its own merits when it was originally released. And I agree with that. That's what I was saying earlier. But there are some that just didn't like this movie. Nick K. gave it a lonely one star, and he wrote, Boring and extremely slow. A disgrace to the vibrant and fast-paced original. The original was from 1937, and it moves way faster than Return to Oz from 1985 does. Ginny N. gave it only a half star, and she wrote, This was one of the worst movies of all time. Wow, that's pretty harsh. Have you ever seen Manos, Hands of Fate, Ginny? Anyway. Kirk B. gave the film a star and a half and wrote, Wow, that was bad. So weird. And in general, a poor remake of the original movie. Not worth watching again. Gee, um, Kurt, I, I don't know if this was supposed to be a remake of the original movie. In fact, I don't think it was, but you're entitled to your opinion. So, thank you, Russell, for recommending this film. I did enjoy it. It was worth seeing. I, I wouldn't have ever watched it if you didn't recommend it. Like I said, when we talked, I thought I had seen parts of it years and years ago, but now that I watched it, no, I've, I never saw it before. For those of you who've never seen it, it is on Disney+, Plus, of course, so you can watch it there, and I think you can also watch it on Amazon for like four bucks. Walter Murch, by the way, after not being able to get another directing job because of this movie, he went back to doing the things he was doing before, sound design and that type of thing, so... He's had a long and distinguished career, but I think he really wanted to be a director. I saw an interview with him on YouTube, and he's pretty much resigned to the fact that he doesn't think that's ever going to happen. So that's sort of sad. But anyway, thanks for listening. I am Torgo. I take care of the place while the master is away. We only want to know where Valley Lodge is. Which way do we go? There is no way out of here. It will be dark soon. There is no way out of here. 
No way out. The hands of fate have doomed this man. Thy will is done. Manos will be served. A little bit before I go, a little announcement here. I'll be taking the month of July off, but don't worry. Nancy and Gordon have offered to fill in for me for those weeks. Um, And if by chance they get too busy to fill in every week, well, I've got some old Coffee with Jeff episodes that I could rerun that sort of fit in with the format of celluloid days, so I think we'll be okay. See, here's my plan. As long as I keep doing this show, I'm going to take a summer and winter break. I mean, if I planned it a little better, I should have been taking June and December off. But this year, it's July and December. Assuming I keep doing this show next year, I'll be taking June and December off. So anyway, hey, what can I say? It's tough doing a show every week. I'm pretty much a one-man operation here. In it. But before I go, I do want to thank Nancy and Russell for contributing. I guess technically I'm not a one-man show because I get their help, but you know. Anyway, it's very much appreciated, you two. For next week... We're going to finally do Manos, The Hands of Fate. We're going to talk about the Rift and the Unrift version. And like I said earlier, I'm going to try to be positive about the film, so join us then. Now listen up, I have a Facebook page. I would love to read your comments on it or get suggestions for movies I should watch. It's called Celluloid Days. I I wish you would join us. I also have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. Please follow us. I would be grateful. And I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. My email address is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of celluloid, all being one word. Feel free to email me for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, At wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Again, thanks to Nancy and Russell. And, of course, to you, the listener. I wouldn't do this if it wasn't for you. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Your stupid minds, stupid, stupid. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can.